Lord, we thank you for your mercies that are fresh and new for every day, for the grace that has been poured upon us. And God, we find we ask this morning that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might receive from you, receive from your word. So, Lord, we ask now that you would speak to us, <clears throat> that you would make our hearts and our minds ready. And we pray that you would be glorified through the teaching of your word and, Lord, through the receiving of your people. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray all of these things according to your riches and glory. Amen. You have your Bibles. We're going to be in the book of First Samuel chapter 16. And again, I want to be encouraging you to read through the book of First Samuel. And eventually we'll even be getting into Second Samuel as we look at the life of David, the story of David. And I, I say that because David is uh, the individual, the human being that is spoken more about. We have more chapters about David than any other individual in the entire Bible. We have 66 chapters that are dedicated to David. That's far more than anybody else. Moses has 40. Um, we have Abraham has 14. Jacob has 13. But there are 66 books dedicated to the story of David, dedicated to the person of David. And so if God has that much to say about his servant David, then it stands to reason that we should know about it. Matter of fact, in the New Testament, he is referenced 57 times, usually in the Gospels. So we see that there is much to say about David. And for us to even have a thorough understanding of what Jesus is talking about necessitates that we at least have a basic understanding of the story of King David. So, in fact, that's where we're going to be. And when I think about David, it reminds me uh, of my former life. I, many of you probably know this. I used to be a high school football coach. And uh, it remind, and there are several coaches, matter of fact, even in this service this morning. And it reminds me of a story uh, of kind of the way that the world see th- sees things. The, the old story goes like this, and it's supposedly a, a true story uh, from the head coach at Auburn. But I, I remember my athletic director used to use it as well. He'd say, you know, uh, there was a young assistant coach, and, and he, uh, the head coach brought him in and said, hey, look, here's the deal. Uh, when you go out and recruit, I want to make sure we're on the same page for what kind of player we're looking for. He said, you know, there's, there's a guy out there that when he sees somebody coming, he runs the other way. He's always looking not to take the hit. I remember Deion Sanders says that's a business decision. But nevertheless, he said he's always trying to stay away from the hit. He goes, that's not the guy we want. He goes, that's right, coach. We don't want that guy. He goes, there's another guy that when you hit him, he falls down and he stays down. And he goes, that's not who we want either as a coach. He goes, no, that's not the guy we want. He goes, there's another guy. You hit him. He falls down. You hit him again really hard and he stays down. That's not the guy we want either as a coach. He goes, no. He goes, you know, there's another guy. You hit him. He falls down. You hit him. He falls down. You hit him. He falls down. He just gets back up. He goes, that's the guy we want. He goes, no, that's not the guy we want either. He goes, well, coach, who do we want? We want the guy that's knocking everybody down. And isn't that the way we are in our culture today, in our society today? We want the guy that's knocking everybody else down. We want to be the man that's knocking everybody else down. But in fact, the story of David is really more like the story of Cinderella, if, if we're really honest. And I, I mean, I was a boy, but I used to love the story of Cinderella. You know, the whole deal. Cinderella, who has the, the little peachy, peach king uh, society, or excuse me, family, so to speak, in that she has a wonderful mother and father. Then her mother dies and her father remarries and uh, marries a not-so-wonderful woman. And she has two snotty-nosed sisters uh, who are self-consumed with themselves. 
And, uh, and then depending on what story you read, the, the father dies or he goes off somewhere. And so here's Cinderella left, the, the, the precious young little girl uh, with the two um, egocentric uh, sisters and kind of the uh, abrasive mother. And they give her all the chores and they make her do all the work and they make fun of her. And, and she still has a kind heart and she just tries to exist in a very difficult situation. And then there comes a an invitation for all the women to come to this ball where the prince is looking for a wife. And they all get excited and they all get dressed up. And Cinderella hears about the invitation. She asks if she can go and the girls make fun of her. Hey, you're dirty. You're stinky. You don't have a dress. You, you can't go. You're merely a servant girl. You're, you can't go to something like this. And the mother says, well, if you can finish all the chores I give you then and make your own dress, then you can come. And so, in fact, that's what happens. She gives a, her just a ridiculous list of chores. And Cinderella works all night and all day and, and all the next night and can't complete those. And then finally finishes them, but she doesn't have time to make a dress. And they leave her there and she cries. And then the fairy godmother, whoever she is, shows up and comes and. And, and says, Cinderella, are you upset? And she goes, well, I want to provide an opportunity for you to go to the ball. I can't. She goes, yes, you can. And so she turns rats into horses and pumpkins into chariots and a coachman, a lizard into a coachman, and then gives her a beautiful dress. And uh, she goes to the ball and she has glass slippers, of course, and she gets there, has a remarkable time. The prince sees her. He's immediately attracted to her, spends all the time dancing while uh, the snotty nose sisters are left on the side uh, to complain and whine about who is this girl anyway, because they don't recognize her because she's so beautiful and made up and they've never seen her clean. And so they continue. And, <clears throat> and, you know, and then she realizes it's almost midnight. And the fairy godmother said, if you don't get back by midnight, then uh, all this goes back to the way it was. And so certainly she hears the first uh, clang of the clock and she starts to run. And as she's running away, she loses a slipper as the prince is following after her. He's not able to catch her, but he picks up that glass slipper. And of course, everything goes back to the way it is. She goes back home. And um, she's once again, dirty little Cinderella, uh, having to do all the chores and at the beck and call of her stepsisters and her uh, stepmother. And then it's heard that the king or the prince is going throughout the land with this glass slipper, trying to find out who it will fit. And he comes to their house and the sisters come and trying to put it on her feet, but they're much too big and they can't get that little slipper on their feet. And the prince makes this statement, he says, do you have any other daughters? Well, not really. We have a servant girl that's in the back, but she didn't even go to the ball. She's just a servant girl. I said, well, if you would, go ahead and send her, send her forward nevertheless. So they bring her in and they put the glass, the prince puts the glass slipper. And of course, it fits perfectly. And Cinderella even has the other slipper. And of course, uh, he makes a proposal to her to marry her. And, and she's such a sweet woman. She even takes those two hags with her and, and the stepmother, you know, and says, you know, let's take them with us and let them live in the palace as well. So it's just a, you know, beautiful story. <clears throat> you've got the villain. <clears throat> you've got the heroine. And it's a great story. <clears throat> we like it <clears throat> because it's the girl who was oppressed. It's the girl who was put at the bottom of the list, <clears throat> who was overlooked. But the prince sees the real heart. The prince sees the real, so to speak, princess even when no one else notices her. That's the story of David, in fact. That's what happens with David. He's the last, but he becomes first. He's overlooked, but then he is magnified. He's the little, the smallest, but yet he will be placed in a place of authority. He's loyal to a 
fault almost. He's a learner. He learns from his experiences when he's sentenced out into the shepherd fields and when he's in the caves hiding and he loves deeply. It's a beautiful story. It's the almost the antithesis of King Saul, who operated out of his paranoia. Saul was a king, as we discussed a few weeks ago, who did everything he could to keep his power and to control. He was self-centered, but not just self-centered. He was self-protective. He tried to protect and to keep instead of simply being obedient and being faithful. He tried to control his pride and his fear managed him, controlled him. But David was motivated by his beliefs and his conviction. And he, was a, he had a heart, a man after God's own heart. He had a fervency to me, a man after God's own heart. And while Saul might have been the people's choice because he was tall and good looking, has a, was a head above any of the other men in his tribe, the obvious choice, David was the least to be expected Let's look at our text here this morning and see what we can learn about the person of David, <clears throat> about a man that God had so much to tell us about. We pick up here, and it's right after Samuel the prophet, who we studied a few weeks ago. Samuel, who is the first true uh, prophet in the official sense of the word, a prophet, the priest. He had been a judge and then had uh, given that position over to Saul. And he has been Saul's advisor, but Saul time and time again has been unfaithful and not been obedient to the word of God. And so God rejects him and Samuel is broken. And so that's where we pick up in chapter 16, verse one. And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? How long are you going to be stuck here? Saul has proven over and over and over again. He's so self-consumed that he will not listen. He's been given opportunity after opportunity, but I am moving on. I am going to place my spirit, my anointing, my blessing upon someone else. I need you, Samuel, to get up. I need you to quit living in the past. Quit thinking about the mistake that you've made or he's made or you think I've made. It's time to move on. How long will you mourn for Saul? I reject him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. And be on your way. There's a good message for us right there today. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Interesting, he says, fill your horn with oil. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, you see that Saul, when he was anointed, Samuel took what? A flask. Now, a flask was just a small jar of oil. Uh, matter of fact, maybe you see sometimes people with anointing oil with a little little bottle. That's that's much like what a flask was. It was just a small bottle. And that's what Saul was anointed with. But now we see a different picture here. We see a horn, a horn full of oil. He tells David, or excuse me, he tells Samuel, I want you to take that horn of oil and I want you to move on and I want you to anoint who I tell you to anoint. So, in fact, that's what he does. And he heads to Bethlehem. And when he gets to Bethlehem, he goes to the family or the clan of Jesse. Now, a little bit of background on who Jesse is. Jesse, in fact, was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? They had a son. Their son's name was Obed. And Obed has a son. His name is Jesse. And Jesse, of course, has David. So you see that 
Jesse, or excuse me, David is the great grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Now, that's very important because later on, you'll, we know that the Messiah will come out of the line of David. You can, you can go back and see the heritage, see the lineage. And it's also interesting as we look in this fact that you'll notice that David is a typology or a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. Matter of fact, the word anointing literally means in the in the Hebrew, it's the word we get Messiah, Messio from Messiah. And in the Greek, uh, the word is what? Does anybody know what the word in the Greek is? Christos, the Christ. Okay, that's what it means when we say anointed. So you see it here. So that term, the Christos, the anointed one. Uh, so we see the typology that David is, in fact, to be the anointed one. He is to be the Messio, the Messiah of that day. Now, not in the salvation sense, but in uh, the country sense, in the national sense. Okay, he is going to deliver them. He's going to bring their hearts back. Uh, to God Almighty. He's going to be a king that doesn't seek to accumulate, but to distribute the spirit of God and the authority of God. So as we continue here, we see Jesse in Bethlehem. Of course, this is where Jesus will be born. Uh, another foreshadowing of the the Christ of the Messiah to come. I have chosen the one I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how do I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. Remember, we said Saul is paranoid. Saul is seeking to protect, to keep, to consume, to control. And his people are very aware of it. And Samuel's even aware of it. He, he recognizes because Saul knows the spirit has left him. He recognizes that uh, he is not the chosen one. He knows that someone else will come. So he thinks in his mind, maybe he can control the situation. But in fact, you cannot control the hand of God. And the Lord says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you must do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate or literally the one I see, the one that I choose, the one that I will show you. So here's the deal. Yes, Saul is paranoid. I understand that. But I want you to go and I want you to provide a sacrifice, which will not be uncommon. Uh, invite them to come and to participate uh, from the clan of Jesse. Invite his family to come and participate in this and offer that sacrifice before me. And, of course, when they would offer those sacrifices, it also meant a time of feasting. I mean, meat was a rare delicacy to have an opportunity to eat meat. Uh, that was considered uh, just an extreme extravagance and wasn't something you did every day, and particularly this amount of meat. So it was a feast. It was a party. It was a time of celebration after the sacrifice. And he said, well, I'm going to offer that, and then I want you to bring your family. I want you to consecrate yourself. I want you to go. Uh, part of that act was they were to bathe and to put on clean clothes and come and prepare yourself. So uh, that's what I'm going to do. So when the people ask, you can let them know. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. Of course, they're scared too. They know of Saul's paranoia. They know that it would be easy for him to come in and to try to squash them uh, as a tribe, so to speak, or as a people group in this area. If he thinks they're being rebellious or they're doing anything, they're, they obviously live with that fear. And he says, no, I'm coming in peace. Don't worry about it. I'm not bringing trouble. Uh, I'm not coming to speak out. Against Saul, specifically here, Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, 
Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed Christos Messiah stands here before the Lord. Why did he think that? Well, I'll tell you why he thought that. Because he was the oldest son. Because he was the biggest. He was the tallest. He was the obvious. He was probably, in many ways, leading that family right now because his father, Jesse, is quite old at this time. So a lot of the day-to-day decisions that are being made, the day-to-day work that's occurring, is going through Eliab. Okay? So he's the obvious. Uh, when In that culture, the oldest son was the one who would take over in authority for the family. Uh, he was the one who would be the leader of that clan, particularly after the father passed away or if the p- p- father had gotten older. Uh, now we know Jesse is not old enough to fight, and so it, he is the obvious choice. He is the next in line. He's the one that everyone would have thought. And so sure enough, even Samuel thinks that when he walks through the line. Surely that's God's anointing. But you know what he's using? He's using the same standard that they use for Saul. Because he looked like the anointed. I mean, he's taller, he's bigger, he's stronger, he's older. He's, he's the man. And lest we become too critical at this time, let me tell you, that was very common, and that was actually a practice of survival. Uh, usually, if you weren't a direct descendant of the king or the man in, in charge, the way it was decided who would be the leader was the one who was the strongest, the one who basically could beat everybody else up or kill everybody. That's how it was made. And often, even if you were in line, that didn't stop somebody else who was stronger from coming and taking your position. I mean, if you go back and look in history, particularly in early history, that's the way it was done. Even if you go back, I'm a big Braveheart fan, and if you're a man, you've seen that. If not, you should. Uh, but, you know, if you go back, and I went back and studied William Wallace. I was fascinated by him. Now, now first of all, he's not that nice of a guy, and they probably made him look, not probably, made him look a lot better than he was. But one thing that we know about William Wallace, and we're talking about in the 12th century, the 12th and 13th centuries when he lived, is that he was a big man. The average man was about 5'3", uh, five, anywhere from 5'2 to 5'4 during that time. William Wallace was about 6'7", maybe even 6'8". So he was huge. He was a Goliath-looking figure. His sword was about between 5'6 and 5'7". Okay, I, I'm 5'8", so it's almost my height. That's how big his sword was. So you think about me with a sword and William Wallace with a sword. Who's going to win that battle? And then you go back. Okay, and so the the big man was usually the man in charge. That's the way it worked. And it was survival of the fittest. That's the way it operated. So it was very common to think that way because that's the way things were worked out. That's the way it was determined who would lead the charge, who would be in charge, the one who could beat everybody else up. And so your warrior, when Goliath came out, that's why that was such a big deal. That's why they were so afraid. Hey, nobody else compares to this guy. He's way above us. And nobody else wanted to fight him i.e. William Wallace, his authority, his stature, his mysticism. A lot of that was attributed to his size. So that's the common way to think. That's the way they thought in their culture, and it's the way we think in our culture to a large degree today. We still look on the outside and make our assessments. We see here, uh, but the Lord says to Samuel in verse uh, 6 and 7 here, he says, do not consider his appearance or his height. Notice how they use the word height. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. Hey, that's Saul number two, and the sequel will be worse. Let's don't go there. God tells him, the Lord does not look 
at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's interesting, Leanne said earlier, God sees us. That's literally what the Hebrew says, but God sees them. God sees the man. Literally, he understands the motivation, the passion of the heart. He sees. And then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass before Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen him either. And Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, no, neither has the Lord chosen him. Jesse had seven sons, the, the perfect number, pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked, are these all the sons you have? Literally, it says, are these all the boys you have? Now, what we see here is a principle or a thing that we see throughout Scripture, that God is in the business of not taking what the world says is first. We see God all throughout Scripture using this principle. He prefers Cain, Abel over Cain, Jacob over Esau. These are all younger brothers. Joseph over his older brothers. And now we, now we see who? We see David over his older brothers. God looks in and sees the heart. And while we will look on the outward appearance and say, hey, culturally, the oldest son, the biggest son, the biggest one, that's who we're going to take. That's who needs to lead. And God's saying, that's a poor, uh, that's a poor grid to decide who's the leader. Who is the one to rule in authority? Who is to be my spiritual communicator? That may be the way that you do battle. That may be the way that you do war. But it's not the way that you know me. It's not the way that you'll be guided by my spirit. So, in fact, he said, do you have any other boys? There is still the youngest. And we miss something here in the language right here in the Hebrew. They're still the youngest. Literally, you know what he's saying? He goes, they're still the runt. There's the one that's not big enough, smart enough, ready enough. Worthy enough. There's one still out in the fields, okay? But there's just the runt. That's all we've got left. And he's he's out taking care of the sheep right now. You think about this picture. David, we don't know exactly how old he is, but he's probably 14, 15 years old, 16 at the most. They're having this feast. The priest has come in, which is rare. They're having this big feast, and everybody's been invited, and all the sons are there except for David. I mean, he's still out there in the field with the sheep. He's not even being invited to come in and eat. Well, at least come on and eat. Now, you know what? We'll get later. We'll get to him later. I'm sure he's having some nice roots or whatever it is that he's having out there right now. He'll be fine. And so he's not even invited in. And literally, the prophet has to say, Samuel has to say, do you have any other boys? Do you have any other son? Well, yeah, there's one more. And seven, if you'll remember, is the number of completion. It's the number of fullness, the number of blessing. If God uses that number seven throughout Scripture, it's the number of complete fullness. So here are seven boys, and, and you would have been thought to have been mightily blessed by God if you had seven boys. But in fact, he has eight. As a matter of fact, I, I learned this last week, and I read it in a commentary after I learned it when I was at our, uh, our little class here. We have Jewish rabbis, uh, Messianic, Messianic rabbis coming in each Wednesday night to teach on prophecy. And uh, one of them shared, one of the rabbis shared this week here, right here, matter of fact, that um, the uh, number eight signifies new beginnings. That's what it means, new beginnings. Isn't it interesting that David is the eighth son? Seven is completion. This is it. But eight is a new beginning. God's doing something new. So, in fact, David is the eighth son here. And what does the Bible say? He's the youngest. 
but he is out tending the sheep. He's taking care of the sheep. I don't think that's the direction you want to go. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. We will not continue this process. Nothing's going to happen until he comes back. And so he sent for him and had him brought in. And he was ready with a fine appearance and handsome features. He was ready. Uh, the word reddish. He was reddish in nature. So he probably wasn't dark like Saul with dark hair. His hair was lighter. It doesn't mean that he was necessarily a red hair, but he had lighter hair and lighter skin and maybe a, a reddish face. And that wasn't probably thought to be highly masculine, by the way, as well. There were multiple reasons that he might not have looked upon David as ready or as the man, so to speak. And here he is. He's kind of a cute boy, by the way, as well. And so he comes in and they look at him. They see him. And can't you just see the story of Cinderella all over again here? Where was Cinderella? You know, they'd forgotten about her, left her out, overlooked her. She's out doing the chores. They're having the ball and they're having a big feast and and she's left at home. Kind of see that picture. I'm sure David didn't come in smelling too good from the sheep field. I mean, the whole deal, you, you kind of see the, the story there. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. He is the Christos. He is the Messiah of this day, he will be the one who restores my people into the right relationship with me and puts my people in the place that I desire for them to be. He shall be the king and from his loins shall come the Messiah from his namesake. You will see it come from the line. And so, in fact, that's what occurs. So Samuel took what the horn of oil, not the flask of oil, but the horn of oil. And anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, the brothers probably don't understand that he's been anointed and king. Samuel does not uh, say that. Now, Samuel might whisper it in David's ear. But what we know is that the spirit of God comes upon him in a mighty way from that day forward. Uh, and we actually know that there are two other anointings in the book of Second Samuel that will occur later on that are more of the official, the, the kingship, the um, uh, kind of the uh, royalty uh, authority is, is given to him. So at this point, people aren't looking, oh, there's the king. This is really more uh, that you are being called out. They might have even thought he's been called out for special service for the king, which ultimately he will be uh, for the ultimate king. But they don't understand that. But. Something happens to David, a man of character, a man of integrity, a man who is faithful, a man of con conviction. Think about some of the characteristics of David. He's a man of conviction. We know that from his writings. We know that uh, from his ability and his willingness to stand up to Goliath, that huge man, because he believes in the covenant promises of God. He's hardworking. He's in the sheep fields. As a matter of fact, we know if you continue to read this chapter, he obviously goes back because they have to call him out again from the fields. So he doesn't think because he had this special anointing that, hey, you know, I'm a special. I'm going to be in the palace here pretty soon. Uh, he doesn't do that. He goes back and he begins to tend the sheep. He practices God's word. We know that from the Psalms that he writes. Uh, he, can, he is content. And he is happy with where God has placed him at that time. We don't see him arguing. We don't see him bellyaching about his position. He's been last. He's been little. But yet he's been faithful. Uh, he's, uh, he endures faithfully when he's attacked, when he's attacked by Saul. 
when he's attacked by verbally by his older brother, uh, Eliab, later on, we see this continually, him just being faithful. He's dependent upon God. Uh, he's dependent upon God when he's in the cave. He's dependent on God when he's against the giant. He's obedient to the word that God gives him. And even when he sins greatly, he confesses. He's a servant. We know that. He's teachable. Nathan is able to teach him. Samuel is able to teach him. He's got a teachable spirit and he's loyal. He's loyal to Saul until his death. He's loyal to Jonathan and to that family. Even when they come against him, he is loyal. He's a man after God's own heart. God sees him. He sees what his heart is. It's not about consuming and accumulating power like Saul is, but it's about honoring and glorifying God and doing what is right. That's the heart of David. That's the man God chooses. That's the man God uses then. And it's the man that God continues to use today. It's a great expression. It's a great example. It's great for us to understand. It's the picture of the ultimate Messiah, of Jesus. The one who was born where? Bethlehem. Where did this occur? It's the one who was placed out with the sheep and the livestock when he came into this earth. You see the picture? It's the one who was hunted and haunted by Satan and, and the establishment of the day. As Jesus was hunted and haunted by Satan and the establishment of that day. It's the one who was forgotten by the Father. Jesus, the one who was forsaken by the Father. For our sake. Hey, don't you, aren't you glad that we serve a God who says this? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake finds life. He who loses his ego and puts his heart and his focus on me, regardless of what it cost him, he finds life. He finds purpose. He finds the meaning of which I created him. That's quoted six different times in the Gospels. More than any other quote that Jesus gave. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his ego for my sake finds life. That's the man God chooses. It's the woman God uses. What about you today? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. I pray this morning, God, that you would have give us eyes that see as you see. For you look in and you see our hearts. You see our motives. And if our motives are fear of self-preservation and self-protection, or even worse, if our motives are how can I simply leap ahead? How can I use God to get what I want? How can I use others to obtain the power that I so desperately desire? Then we literally lose our lives. We waste our lives. But for those who will seek to give our lives away for your glory, for your sake, for your honor, who make the right decision when it costs us, when we decide to exercise integrity, and self-sacrifice for your glory. That is when we find life. We find peace. We find purpose. And the Spirit rushes upon us. 
I pray, Lord, that we would not be satisfied with a flask of oil, with a small dose of God's spirit upon us. But, Lord, we would open up our lives for a horn full of oil, for the horn of spirit to be upon us and use us so that you might be glorified. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you today, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit that they might know you. In your name I pray. Amen.